We don't want perverts elected in New York City. No perverts. Afghanistan, say goodbye, Taliban, free elections in Iraq, Saddam Hussein, lock up. Some are staying underground, Al-Qaeda now is finding out America won't turn and run once the fighting has begun. Libya turns over news, Lebanese want freedom too, Syria's forced to leave, don't you know that all this means? Bush was right! Welcome to Michael and Us. Once again, I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... I'm Luke Savage. Hey guys, good to be back. What a week. Uh, we just had the Paul Manafort news. I don't have anything to say about Whatever, it. Whatever, man. Yeah, it is what it is. I'm excited for Mike Pence to become president, and then we'll get 16 years of Mike Pence. One thing that we'd like to talk about, I think, is the rehabilitation of President Bush. Well, you know, it's long been kind of our official editorial position on Michael and Us <laughs> that... George W. Bush is kind of a misunderstood hero. He's somebody like Winston Churchill, who like, like the positions he took, they were unpopular, but they were the right thing. And we don't need any more Neville Chamberlains in history. We already had one. I wasn't a fan of his presidency, but I think he's really redeeming himself with the paintings that he's making. It's like through those paintings, those soldiers live again. Yeah, I, th- I think it's great. Although I w- I'm actually a big fan of his presidency. I, th- I think he's one of the great orators of our age and one of the great political figures of modern times. So I'm happy to see like so many liberals who were so histrionic about him during his presidency finally come around and see what a great man he is. Say what you will about the Iraq war, but you can still see, if you squint hard enough, the tattered ideals of America. You can still see our love of liberty, our love of democracy. And, and that's this, what we would be saying if we were among the 50% of Democrats polled recently who said that they now view him favorably. Honestly, okay, we live in hell. It's incredible. What I love is that the people that admire George W. Bush the most now that are on the Democratic side are also the people who were like, Bernie Sanders is the worst person ever. He's evil. Also, the greatest monsters of history are Ralph Nader and Susan Sarandon. And because they gave us George W. Bush, who is also a saint and a patriot and American hero. Well, you know, the thing is, when a guy like Donald Trump is elected president, it's you know, it's it's like a death in the family happening. And you can you can react to it in two ways. You can say, okay, America is not exceptional. America has a deep rot in it that needs to be fixed. And to fix that rot, we're going to need big, big changes Mm -hmm. and we have to rebuild. Or what you can say is, well, this is an aberration. This is the Russians meddling. This is people not being informed enough. America is still good and this aberration has happened. And to do that, you have to say that the presidency before this was an uninterrupted line of great and honorable men, even if they were in the opposed, even if they disagreed they still had America's best interests at heart. And so now George W. Bush, who I'm old enough to remember, was once this great aberration, was once this uniquely unfit president who Barack Obama came along and righted the path again and redeemed America for. Now he's an elder statesman. I was in the steam room at my gym a couple of weeks ago, and these two guys were having a conversation that actually in a lot of like, I mean, they were both guys that were outraged about Trump and uh a lot of what they were saying like they were clearly like very well-meaning and they were talking about like they're concerned about 
the rise of racism in the United States. I don't know if it's a rise, but that's kind of how they framed it. The, the rise of populism in the United States. Well, they did. I mean, yeah, they did eventually sort of come to that. And, and one of them said something like to the effect of all the presidents leading up to Trump, they tried to bring people together, but all he cares about is dividing people. And I don't know what universe you have to live in to think that okay george bush this is a presidency where people were rallying against the dixie chicks yeah i mean uh it was a presidency where they were changing the promotional materials when you go see the grand canyon to you know talk about how it was created by a flood three thousand years ago <laughs> freedom you know, prize i don't know what the freight ronald reagan's phrase about chicago welfare queens if that's not a divisive <laughs> phrase i don't know what is or uh you know, George H.W. Uh, Bush's comments about, you know, uh, gay people or whatever, uh, or the Reagan White House, you know, we have them on audio cassettes, you know, laughing about the AIDS epidemic. If that's bringing people together, I mean, I don't know. But what's great about the American experiment and what's very innovative about it is how with every election cycle as institutions become as already rotten derelict racist <laughs> institutions become more and more destructive and corrosive and uh oppressive uh the body politic figures out a way to inv reinvent the ceo the <laughs> latest ceo or the rather the previous ceo as like a great a great leader who uh you know, um, has only been, their legacy has only been tainted by the uh, legacy of the latest head of the board. Uh, in this case, it's Donald Trump. 20 years from now, Donald Trump is going to be the noble patriot. It's going to be great. to bring people together. You know, in 2032, the next bad Republican will be around and Trump will say, you know, racism, that's not good. Yeah. And then people are going to say, you know what? I didn't agree with Trump's presidency, but he be <laughs> he believed in a, in a stronger America. <laughs> he believed in returning America to its ideals. In fact, I think I remember his campaign message was make America great again. And, and who that, could disagree? That's with the that. kind of message we need now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it was an eventful week. You you uh, helped host uh, Bernie Sanders' visit. That's right. Toronto. So my my uh, organization that I work for, the Broadbent Institute, was a partner in um, welcoming Senator Sanders, who is on a fact finding mission here in Canada. Uh, he toured uh, Toronto Hospital, and what I thought was really great about the speech was. I mean, it was in many ways a typical Bernie Sanders speech, but I thought it was it was very striking to me to kind of see him kind of use his like forceful moral language. He uses it in a way that is so simple and yet uh, so effective. And also his talent for kind of tying together. I mean, he was here to talk about healthcare, and yet he tied it into all the things that he cares about um, and that he's campaigned on you know, money and politics, the power of kind of plutocrats and stuff. And it was funny to see this crowd, which was partly a left-wing crowd and also partly not a left-wing crowd in, I would say, a, a, a somewhat bougie setting at, mm -hmm. at uh, our alma mater, the U of T. You know, uh, it was it was interesting to see them kind of reacting to, you know, what was a pretty left-wing populist speech and, and to see how well-received uh, it was. But, I mean, you know, for all the praise Bernie had for Canada's healthcare system, I think there was kind of, a, to me anyway, a subtext of, you know, he, he was asked by Dr. Daniel Martin afterwards, who's a Canadian physician who was there for his the launch of his 
Medicare for All bill about like, you know, what what can we Canadians do to kind of, you know, keep up the fight and uh, to, to help you and to also fix the problems in our own healthcare system, which is not perfect. And, you know, I, uh, in the last week, actually read Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. And it needs to be said that there's a lot about this bill, which really leapfrogs what uh, we have in Canada. Nobody tell patron saint of the show, Michael Moore, this, <laughs> but actually the Canadian healthcare system, because it was designed in the early 60s, leaves out a lot of crucial areas. So it leaves out pharmacare, it leaves out vision, dental, um, psychiatric care. You know, I actually wrote a report about 18 months ago for the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and I learned a lot about kind of how inadequate we are in covering addiction services and, and, and mental health services generally throughout the country. And Sanders' bill, it's on top of all of that. If it was adopted, the United States would have a better healthcare system than we do. I don't know. I hope that Canadians can, like, borrow something from the militancy of Bernie Sanders to make our own healthcare system and other things about our country better because uh, so far everything about the United States, I think it's kind of been a theme of our show, has just tended yeah. to make us more complacent. But speaking of Canadian complacency, you had an article recently that uh, I, I was a really big fan of, of it. It's one of my oh, favorite you. pieces of yours that you've done for a while. And uh, it was about, you know, another friend of the show, Norm Kelly... <laughs> Who, um, I wish somebody would make a movie about him so we could talk about it on the show. It would be called At Norm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, we still got to do the Canada, uh, the like Canada 150 oh, yeah, Spectacular well, yeah, Part yeah. 2. And, and maybe Norm could have a role in that. I'm not sure. <laughs> because I do actually think that he sums up a lot about our mm-hmm. beautiful nation. Could you talk a little bit about what the article was and, and why you wrote it? Uh, this is an article, a short article I wrote for Torontoist called A Requiem for At Norm. Some people listening may know that in Toronto, we have a city councillor named Norm Kelly, who was kind of a journeyman politician for about 40 years, but he really rose to prominence for most non-suburbanites when he became Rob Ford's deputy mayor. And when Rob Ford was away, you know, uh, looking after himself during his crisis, Norm Kelly earned a lot of respect from across the spectrum. And he was the second deputy mayor because mm-hmm. because Doug Holliday went away and became a PC MPP. And, and Norm kind of came in, I guess, during like the dying days of the mm-hmm. Ford mayoralty. And his style was much more conciliatory, much less ideological than Rob Ford's style. And he was able to parlay this into a career as the the meme generator in chief on city council. I mean, it's I think it's pretty obvious that he hired some social media people who took over yeah, his it's account. A PR agency. If you saw Sean Craig went back and at, at a global went back and found like what Norm's tweets in 2011 looked like, and they're pretty bad. Yeah, well, as Sean Craig said, it was like, it's a mix between Larry King and Joe Warmington. Yeah, yeah. Norm Kelly rose to international prominence by the fact that he started a feud with Meek Mill over Drake. He just tweeted, you're not welcome here at Meek Mill. That was it. And after this... He then did all these tweets kind of talking about hip hop, like like basically Norm Kelly is a blackface artist. Yeah. Uh, and he did a bunch of tweets that are just kind of like, uh, oh, Monday, it's time for coffee. And now he, you know, continuing the blackface theme, he sells T-shirts that are like too lit to politic. You know, it reminds me of I was reading last night. There's a really good article from a, a few issues of Current Affairs back. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> It's in the Current Affairs Mindset, in which two of my essays also appear, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about the Ruth Bader Ginsburg cult. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is similarly like a figure that 
you know, not that she's at all been obscure in, in American public life, but she's somebody who kind of just in the space of like two years was turned into a meme, basically. Yeah. And also, you know, her biography was called Notorious RBG. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there is kind of an element of that, like, I don't know, appropriating like this cool rapper. The juxtaposition between like an old, yeah. very white person yeah. with hip hop slang. Yeah. And I mean, so Norm. Norm I mean, well, Norm has had this like deer in the headlights look on his face ever since. And so now like he'll pop up on stage with Drake. Right. And, like and, he doesn't know where he is. It needs to be said like, so, I mean, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, people can go read the article. It's called, you know, it's called something like the the RBG cult at Current Affairs. Yeah. And a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whatever you can say about her, is kind of a, you know, she's a center-left um, figure. But Norm is 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 a is an overtly reactionary figure like he's a climate change skeptic. He votes against libraries, homeless shelters, yeah. anything that would help poor people in Toronto. Mm. Um, and what I learned And in- he do- and he doesn't give a shit about black issue. As does yeah. does a great Desmond Cole article in the last year for the star about, you know, how Norm will cloak himself in like black yeah. language and culture, but he doesn't give a shit about issues that actually affect black people. Yeah, there's a good Vice article to that effect as well. And, you know, the thesis of my article is just that like the the Norm account is dead and whatever remains is this like rotting zombified corpse. It's just going because the man it centers around is too proud to let it go. And what I learned in writing this article is that a lot of people still like Norm. Really? Um, and I don't know what to attribute it to. A, a, you know, a, lot of, a lot of people were commenting or telling me, you know, a lot of people liked the article. A lot of people were saying, uh, this, is, this is so gratuitously mean. What are you, what are you going after? Oh my God, I'm rolling for? my eyes here. You know, so, like a, a fucking politician who votes against homeless shelters. How dare you, Will? Yeah, I know, I know. And I don't know what to attribute this to. I mean, people clearly love holding on to the illusion of, you know, this this lovable rapping grandpa who's kind of he's post ideological, right? Well, our, our you know? friend, uh, our our mutual friend and and former colleague at the Varsity, Kelly Kordaki, also wrote a great article yeah. about Norm for Torontoist um, a few years ago, and you know, I think. Part of the thesis of her article was that there's two norms. Like there's the actual Norm Kelly, mm-hmm. who's you know an aging white conservative, mm-hmm. um, who's kind of just a hack city politician, and then there's the at norm, which is just like a brand. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps you know I think for most people, if they know Norm, they know the at norm version. They don't know the other version, mm-hmm. and it's probably uncomfortable for that to be disrupted, and they, and they don't like it. And I'm sure Norm has only been helped by what's been happening in the U.S. Canadians, yeah. and you know Justin Trudeau has been helped by it. Everyone, John Tory's been helped by it. Canadians like looking at the U.S. and seeing the kind of like sober politicians yeah. we have up here and saying we're better. We're better than that. Yeah. But I mean, you might have gotten some criticism, but of course, Norm himself being <laughs> so secure in his fame and in his gravitas was totally unaffected and um in fact told you so in a subtweet i can proudly say that i was subtweeted by internationally beloved toronto city councilor norm kelly at norm at norm where he tweeted just a few hours after my article dropped lions don't lose sleep over the opinions of sheep remember that and, uh, you know, if being a lion means selling, you know, garbage merchandise if, with your fucking face on it, then I think that's if, what he if, is. If being a lion means uh, 
you know, obnoxiously subtweeting an article on a local blog yeah. um, about how you're not losing sleep. I think that's spending you know, 40 years on city council with no significant accomplishments. <laughs> then that's you're a lion. It, your, your legacy is that you voted against like an extra million for homeless shelters in the winter. or You something. voted against making Toronto a sanctuary city. And then and then you tweet about how diversity is our strength. You know, you're a lion. <laughs> Um, uh, so what did we watch tonight? Well, you know, I actually think there's a parallel here in the conversations <laughs> we've had so far because we've talked about somebody who's, you know, just kind of this social media commodity or whatever. <laughs> and um, I thought one of the best things about your article was you not only talked about Norm, but you talked about kind of the social media ecosystem that enabled the rise of Norm and, and the kind of various things that have come along and shifted in it. So you mentioned how Justin Trudeau is someone who's a lot more comfortable being kind of a sentient piece of clickbait. He's come <laughs> yeah. along. Uh, you mentioned how Hillary Clinton's campaign tried to kind of use the same the same ethos of kind of, oh, look, it's like an, you know, an older politician who's kind of using like cool younger people slang. Yeah. Um, but it didn't really, you know, 12 reasons Hillary Clinton is my abuela or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we watched a film tonight that's really about, I guess, somebody who one can only imagine what it would be like now if, you know, the Anthony Weiner stuff happened um, (laughs) with Twitter being what it is. But, you know, somebody who I think is really an example of, you know, how how people's careers can just kind of rise and falls. People's lives can just go up and down based on this kind of weird, almost like this strange alchemy of public opinion that now happens through social media. And we watched uh, an extraordinary document, which is the 2016 Wiener film, which is, I think, this is my second time seeing it, and uh, I think one of the most incredible films of 2016. I don't think I've ever seen a documentary that had this much access. Yeah. Certainly not access at this level. The punchline is true about me. I did the dumb thing, but I did a lot of other things too. Running for mayor was the straightest line to clean up the mess that I had made. This is Anthony Weiner call. Yes, I'm not Anthony Weiner, the one running for mayor. Why do you think you deserve the second chance? I do want to answer. I'm giving you the answer. I thought you were thinking about it. I thought no, you were I'm talking to think. words. What I'm going to try to talk about is the issues facing New York City. Just a quick optics thing. You will look happy. Don't push up, Anthony. Show it to me again. Oh my God. I can't believe I gave the press the finger. What I would like to talk about is housing in the Bronx. Any questions about that? Why should we trust you? We're going to try to look like we're holding together as a group. I am profoundly sorry. And for that, I am profoundly sorry. Does the wife's absence say anything? What is wrong with you? (laughs) What is he so afraid of? Your brother said that your father never hugged you. Do you believe you're suffering from any sort of addiction? What are you, the referee over there? We are staying calm and managing the situation. You're a real scumbag, Andrew. Takes one to know one, jackass. Why didn't he just walk back? Nothing has to be brutally honest with you. There's no chance to win anymore. Thought it was going pretty well. It's really apocalyptic right now. But at a certain point, you've got to say, look, I don't quit. This is the worst. Doing a documentary on my scandal at so this movie chronicles Anthony Weiner during his failed comeback attempt when in 2013 he ran for the Democratic nomination for mayor of New York City. This came two years after his 
sterling congressional career came to a crashing halt his seven term congressional career when as you all remember he accidentally tweeted a picture of his erect penis which was supposed to be a dm to some random person on the internet his wife the the right-hand woman to hillary clinton huma abedin improbably stood by him and together they launched this comeback attempt you know, in advance of Hillary Clinton's campaign to kind of rehabilitate him, bring him back into public life, uh, make him no longer a pariah. And within a few weeks, more salacious texts came out. And what really ruined him was the fact that these sexts were sent after he had already been on the comeback trail, after he'd done a spread for People magazine talking about what a changed man he was. So watching this movie, I guess my question for you is, do you feel any sympathy for Anthony Weiner? No, I think this film's great, um, but I do think one of the kind of things that people have taken away from it is that there, like there's always been this narrative, and I do I do want to talk about this in more detail, but there's always been this narrative about Anthony Weiner that it's like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter because he's this progressive politician and whatever, you know, and it's like, he's pretty much, like, this film is also kind of inadvertently just document or like hack New York City democratic <laughs> politics. I mean, he and Huma Abedin, I mean, he, you know, obviously he espouses positions that are to the left of, you know, the American mainstream, but I don't think they're that, there's nothing kind of particularly radical about them for like the New York State Democratic Party. He's any, for single pair. Yeah, I mean, right, but that's like, you know, yeah. for the New York State Democratic Party, like, that's mm. not a particularly, he's like, to be on the left of the New York State Democratic Party is not like some revolutionary position. And most of what we see from Anthony Weiner is not him taking kind of like bold policy positions. It's just him, like what, like we see the ad that he launches his campaign with and it's just him with like Huma and their kid. And he's like, the you know, this is where every day starts. Mm-hmm. I love the city. It's the most important part of the day or whatever. And it's just, he and Huma are people practicing. They're playing the game. They're not opponents to the game in any way. And that is kind of what is so funny about this is that he's somebody who continues to play the game as kind of his whole life and career just unravel because of this un- these unforced errors. But having said all that, like there is another kind of thing you see in this film, which is up until kind of the final series of Wiener Disgraces, you do see members of the public saying stuff like, I don't care what he did in his personal life. I just, you know, I just care about... And I do think Anthony Weiner himself aside, I do think that's an important part of the ecosystem of the Anthony Weiner story because I do think that what that's about is people don't like how the media fixates on like embarrassing details the average person even if they might kind of think it's like funny when like you know a politician like sects someone or something you know most people that actually care about this stuff like they do just kind of want to get on with their lives and they want their lives to be better and they resent the way that the me and like new york state has like terrible it has like the new york post there's all mm-hmm. this kind of tabloidy stuff people hate that and they resent the power of it and i think that when people are sticking up for anthony weiner in this movie that's pretty much what they're angry about it's not really so much about him it's just they they resent the way that the media kind of has power to kind of shape the narrative and stuff it's kind of like with it's a little bit of a digression but i mean the famous and like almost entirely apocryphal story about orson welles war of the worlds broadcast where you know it's been kind of conventional wisdom for what sort of 80 years mm-hmm. that oh the streets were filled with panic people and people died and whatever 
And it's not, it's not true. Are you sure? The, there was a piece uh, from a journalism professor that was in Slate a couple of years ago where he claimed that he or she, uh, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the author, claimed that there's not actually a single death that's hmm. like been properly linked to it. Like, it actually is like an almost entirely apocryphal story. But then the main question they're asking is a sociological one. And it's why does this myth persist, mm -hmm. which is why I brought this up, which is people don't like the power of the mass media. They are they they're resentful of it. They're fearful of it. And for good reason. I mean, one of the other reasons it persists, by the way, is because the media at the time was pretty like exaggerated in its reporting of kind of mm -hmm. the aftermath of this broadcast. I think that there's something kind of similar going on with Anthony Weiner where, you know, people just want to stick up for somebody that they feel is like hard done by by this large kind of apparatus that has no interest other than just finding kind of salacious details and stuff. And Wiener himself is good at kind of exploiting that cleavage because he is a man from as far as I can tell, just through his like sexual pathology thrives on like being publicly humiliated and then coming yeah. back. We see him That's like his win the root. Yeah. We see him win back rooms and things mm -hmm. like that. And so I don't know, that's kind of my read of the of the movie. Okay, and yet though, Wiener's not wrong when he says that this everyone, all the players in this ecosystem play their role. The, like he did the thing, he's guilty, but then the media plays their role in doing it and then the public plays their role in following the media. Like the public is resentful of the power of the media and yet they still play their role in it. When his initial downfall happens, we were all kind of like having fun with the downfall. When the comeback happened, we all kind of followed our script on that. But then when the when the sexting scandal happened again, of course, it was fun to watch him flame out again. Like, we all play our roles. I suppose so, although I don't think there's a symmetrical relationship between the public and the mass media, because I think as consumers of the media, like, we don't have any power in shaping it. I don't really think it's this perfect free market where people's kind of clicks, like... Like, I think public opinion is a much more asymmetrical kind of concept than that, and I tend to think it can be more easily... Like, if public opinion wasn't an asymmetrical thing, we wouldn't have to worry about the influence of big money in politics. We wouldn't have to worry about uh, the power of... You know, we wouldn't have to worry about media concentration because people would just be these autonomous agents who could make up their own minds. But the fact is, it matters that there's just a few big, you know, mm -hmm. media networks that kind of shape things. And it also matters that the primary interest of, you know, most of the mass media is just like, what's going to get clicks? Like what's, mm -hmm. what's going to get pickup? Like it's a market and that, and the market is not synonymous with the public interest. I, I do, but I, but I mean, I do the, take your point. He got 5% in the polls at the end. I mean, mm -hmm. and maybe, I don't know, maybe that's more to say with his campaign. Like once, once the mm. downfall happened, what, well, it'd be unfair to blame there? the media for his entire. Because the other thing that that I think this movie shows is how so much about politics is like there's this contrived standing that you have in politics that's the product of legitimacy is conferred by the, almost this weird alchemy that comes uh -huh. in public life, and um, it can come from you know other famous people endorsing you or kind of associations you have um, or just name recognition and literally nothing else and this is also a film about somebody who has public standing repeatedly undermining that standing and losing his legitimacy over and over again 
because in public life and especially in contemporary public life where everybody is so kind of hyper informed and there's this like mass infotainment culture you can only come back from that so many times like mm -hmm. you can only do the kind of heartfelt you know well i made mistakes mm -hmm. but i you know you can only do that so many times wiener we see kind of push that to the absolute extreme to the point where there's such a disconnect between the artifice of him in public life which is these this New York progressive, which with this loving wife and this beautiful family, um, that versus like him pushing a stroller down a street after having this like extremely affected like peck on the lips from his wife mm -hmm. before she says goodbye and refusing to kind of come out and do a walk around with him. Yeah, and it really falls apart in that scene when he's on the way to vote for himself and he's surrounded by fifty media and they're all saying, Oh, I see your wife isn't with you. What what does that say about your campaign? And then he has to bravely <laughs> say, Oh, it was just a scheduling thing. Um when when I said I was gonna vote for nine at nine thirty, she was gonna vote at ten thirty and then he has to say it like ten times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and and like that's great because that also shows how like one of, one of the things i think a lot of people don't realize like but which you become hyper aware of when you like worked on political campaigns which like unfortunately i've done mm. um is the extent to which like the media is just this infrastructure that you have to use basically i mean there are ways you can go around it like corbin in the uk recently like figured out a way to to basically kind of bypass it Trump kind of does it with his Twitter. Yeah, he kind of does it. He kind of did it, you know, but it is it is this kind of mass. Think about it like a utility, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's like your water, your heating, like it's a conduit through which information is received. And there aren't that many, you know, there aren't that many pipes in the media when there's so much like media concentration. So Wiener has to depend on just like any, you know, mainstream politician anyway, has to depend on the media as a conduit for getting out the message and the media and politicians have a weird kind of symbiotic relationship that actually that, that i mean when politicians have power already it favors them but mm -hmm. when they're seeking it i think it largely favors the media and when you see in that scene where wiener is just walking out and they're asking him over and over again what does your wife's absence say about mm -hmm. your you as a man and your campaign and things like that and he just over and over again all he can do is say oh, that's, it's not a big deal. Or, you know, well, you just keep asking me this and I want to talk about the middle class and those yeah. working hard to join the middle class or whatever. It's really striking there how, like this, I think this film, one of the, the great strengths of it is that it, it shows the artifice of politics for, mm -hmm. for what it is. You wait till I walk out the thing. Yeah, 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 why do you think Wiener collapsed so spectacularly, but Trump was able to survive. I don't want to give Trump the credit of saying that his message was authentic, but there was something in, in his campaign. His his campaign had a thesis to it mm -hmm. that 
people could identify, which was that there's there's a problem in America, and you know the problem is you know immigrants uh, taking it, the jobs, immigrants taking the jobs, and you know fat cat corporate people, yeah. and I'm the one who can fix it. And even when the pussy grabbing scandal happened, he was able to survive that, I guess, because he had a coherent thesis, you know, co- coherent as possible. But I think a lot of the appeal of voting for Anthony Weiner was in his redemption narrative. And I guess the fact that he was sort of seen as a progressive New York Democrat, but not not a lot of specifics attached to that. People liked the idea of him rehabilitating himself but once that was gone all he had was he's for the middle class but what does that mean i actually think there's a pretty easy answer to this which is that the thing about trump is that he like trump is has never been concerned with maintaining like the basic public standing which is kind of the default for Mm. any like professional political campaign he understands the whole as it were like aesthetic thesis apart from the ideological one of the trump campaign was that politics is just an artifice Mm. and the way to be authentic in it is to acknowledge it's an artifice and to just uh all you project is pure id and the thing about wiener that he's incapable of doing is Like, he can't acknowledge that because all he can do is keep falling back on, like, the hill that he's trying to defend is, I'm a family man, and, like, all his standing and and respectability is premised on, I'm a family man, and I'm a progressive... New Yorker and my day starts right here with a cup of coffee just like all the other hard working stuff. You see him at steps. one point in his like, office saying well you know let's take this opportunity to go full Bullworth. That's right. He doesn't. Right. The thing is like nobody believes that. As somebody who's been thinking about politics their entire adult life and has kind of an unhealthy relationship to like I don't know just like it's my hobby as well as my job and yeah, stuff. Yeah that like, sucks. Yeah it does suck and I remember circa kind of 2008, 2009, when I was starting on university, like going to speeches or just like watching things on the internet or whatever. And just my inner voice was like, this sucks, Mm -hmm. you know, like this is very, you know, staged and scripted and it's not really saying anything. But then everything around me in the world that I was in where I was studying political science and, you know, starting to get active in like official, you know, politics and stuff, everything around me telling me this is what it's like and this is what good politics is. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that if you're not in that world and you're just an ordinary person who wants to get on in life, you know, I think that you actually recognize, well, you, you, you are more contemptuous of the fact that politics is an artifice than the people who professionally make it an artifice. Mm-hmm. One of the standard things that happens at any political rally is if you're there as like a supporter is you might have somebody come up to you with a lanyard and they'll say, can you stand behind the stage? Because the cameras will be on the stage and there needs to be people behind it. We're going to give you a sign. Um, if you've ever, anyone who's listening, if you've been at a political rally, um, you know, Uh, in person it's a lot different than watching it on tv the fundamentally artificial nature of it stands out much more to you and i think the thing that trump understood is like you can use that and you can make the whole thing a gratuitous uh set piece Mm. trump is a product of tv and he understands that whereas all these people like trump understands that the dystopian like nightmare cesspool of like cable tv mm-hmm. he understands that as an end in itself where someone like anthony weiner all they can do is understand it as a means to an end even when they have all the professional you know like the people that have you know have like columbia communications degrees and stuff 
it's still just a conduit for getting a message out and that's the yeah. only frame they can think of it as and trump understands that you can break the artifice you can you can pull it inside out and you can turn it against itself he was clever how he used the space the way that he would have the journalists kind of cordoned off in this like mm-hmm. caged area and he, he would he would address them. them yeah yeah and he would say they never come you know when was the last time they came to a rally this far out from a major city or yeah. something like that yeah absolutely i have uh a just really just one basic question for you that i think a lot of people have wondered about for for different reasons uh over the course of the campaign for me it's just comes down to this which is what is wrong with you I don't understand the question what is wrong with me that I care so much about the issues that I fight for every day that I have my entire career no what I mean is this what is wrong with you that you cannot seem to imagine a life without elective office that's ridiculous uh, of course I can. I, I don't know. Are, are you saying that, that because I have things in my personal life that are embarrassing, I shouldn't run for office? Okay, that's, that's no. a fair position me, to have. Some people have Let me have be it. clear. No, I'm not. Let well, me you're be not very clear. So let's work a little harder I'm going to be very clear to you. Do you want to talk about some favorite scenes from the movie? Oh, my God. There's Well, so I, every scene. So, uh, well, I'll say two. One of my favorite scenes is after the new sexting scandal breaks, and it's just Huma and Wiener staring at each other for about 30 seconds in the office that's pure cinema it's poetry it's Uh, visual poetry it's stunning and uh huma has such an an incredible face it's like the passion of joan of arc or or something (laughs) (laughs) and my other favorite there's so many favorite scenes i can't say it definitively it's my other favorite scene but you know the chase through the mcdonald's with sydney leathers oh i mean i remember seeing this the first time I saw this movie, just like jaw on the floor, I couldn't believe that we were actually there in that mythical chase with Sydney Leathers through McDonald's. <laughs> well, I would say my favorite scene in the in the film is there's an interview Wiener did. Was it on Fox after, or was it CNN? It, it was some some place. Some, some I think it was MSNBC. Actually, some yeah, god awful yeah. cable news. Uh, thing that will hopefully be a smoking crater in a few years Mm -hmm. he did an interview and the filmmakers the way they film is brilliant because he's you know doing the interview remotely Mm -hmm. so they're capturing him from the side in the studio so all you see is just him on this empty (laughs) stage which is like a perfect metaphor for this artifice of politics that we're talking about Mm -hmm. but then it keeps cutting to what the interview looks like when it's broadcast on tv and it's just him you know fighting with the guy being like maybe get me back so and kick your ass again or whatever he's yelling into space while crew members just walk past yeah all blase this is what separates this movie from other documentaries like the filmmakers are, are smart enough to see like the poetry, you know. Oh. They know what they're doing, and it's yeah. it's incredible. And the only f- scene in the film that, in my opinion, is better than this is the scene a few moments later where Anthony Weiner is back in their apartment <laughs> and he's watching his own interview, and he's just kind of smirking and he's watching it. Then Huma comes into the room and she's like why are you watching this? Like, what's wrong with you? And he's just saying stuff like, all I can do is laugh. All I can do is laugh. Um, That is, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I couldn't look directly at it while we were watching it. The movie ends as it must with Wiener losing the election, but then it has a a postscript that's that's even sadder in retrospect, where we see him kind of test driving a new career as like a TV as a liberal pundit. Yeah, we see him on Bill Maher or some other shows kind of like 
doing his whole like democrat ted cruz shtick <laughs> uh and of course we know now that that it didn't work uh, i don't know did you like enjoy spending time with him at all like he's like did you find him likable at all just as a presence i definitely think there's a time where i would have i mean i think that like he yeah. he obviously has a certain superficial political skill and when i say superficial i just mean like he has a real political skill well there's that scene when we see him on i think it might be uh staten island or something where he he he's delivering a speech to uh, a hall and and this very new york guy says to him why should we trust you why should be here and he somehow wins that room back yeah he wins the whole room back just kind of through sheer chutzpah yeah it's and it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive but um i i think post obama like i'm not impressed by somebody that has you know that's skilled in retail politics in that Mm -hmm. way i think that the skill of being effective when you're glad handing and kind of being like a popular figure in the in mainstream politics and i don't know the skill of actually like affecting change in the world and being an organizer i mean some of the people that i've known that are the most effective organizers don't have that kind of skill at all but they affect they've affected more fucking change in the world for the good than anthony weiner ever has or ever will so like he speaks well and as a as a mainstream politician he obviously has some chops but i i don't find him a very sympathetic figure and i mean all the stuff all the stuff he did i mean you know here's some we haven't even really addressed this but all the stuff he did with like lying and like sexting and stuff it's pretty with underage women yeah, yeah it's pretty fucking abhorrent it would be abhorrent anyway but the fact that he was doing it I mean, Huma Abedin is is a sympathetic figure in the movie just be in, in the sense that she just keeps, like, she's just committed to their marriage and she just mm-hmm. kind of sticks with it. And he just keeps abusing that over and over again. So, no, I didn't find him a sympathetic figure particularly. Well, you know, you said uh, ever has or ever will. But, you know, you, sh- you just shouldn't count the guy out because who knows? Uh, he may come out of prison in 18 months and... Uh, well, I'm going to be... A, I'm gonna he'll be, be on the wiener comeback trail. I'm going to be more of a Kasich man in 20 that's where i'm that's where i'm sitting um but anyway i think we've got uh i think we have an idea for the next episode we had a um a a gracious uh message from a michael and us fan i think in kansas who was good enough to recommend and also send along um a film about ralph nader that i think we're gonna watch which i guess you've seen i saw it 10 years ago right ralph nader an unreasonable man mm-hmm. uh, which came out i think in the waning days of the bush administration mm-hmm. i think you know we talk about you know a lot of good guys on the show and it's time we talked about a bad guy uh and so i'm yeah. glad we're gonna have an opportunity to chat about ralph nader maybe we can get some digs in at susan sarandon another i mean i think ralph nader you know his jill stein his place in history is is he he He's this awful man who gave us the dignified, respectable, you know, elder statesman, (laughs) George W. Bush. Yeah, he's an awful person who helped elect a great patriot. um, And for that, uh, we have him to thank. Now watch this drive. What worries me, Mr. Vice President, is that folks are going to go to the polls or have already gone to the polls and they don't know what to make of this. They're in the dark. What well, should happen I, now? I think it's unfortunate. I think Hillary, if she said what I'm told she said, is correct. They should release the emails for the whole world to see. The whole world to see. They, they can continue their investigation. It won't, to the best of my knowledge, it won't prejudice the investigation. And, but that's, that's sort of the, the stilted language the agency always uses. And uh, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and so 
it's, it's unfortunate. I'd be remiss if I didn't note that if she had released all the emails from the get-go, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, that's true, um, but I, I don't know where this email, where these emails came from. What apparently I, Anthony Weiner. Well, oh God, oh. Anthony Weiner. Um, I should not comment on Anthony Weiner. I'm not a big fan, and I wasn't before he got in trouble, so I shouldn't comment on Anthony Weiner.